is a true privilege, true honor to be here with you today. I appreciate the friendship with Mike and the relationship with your church. Got lots of good friends that go here, so it's a joy to be here. Uh, we're going to cover a lot of ground in really a short amount of time, so let me start with where this journey really began for me. Uh, two of the most haunting words that I could remember hearing on a consistent basis growing up, and I'm a child of church. My father was a pastor, so I've been on pew since the day I was born, and uh, we were in a lot of different kinds of churches. I grew up uh, initially more in conservative fundamental churches and then spent a pretty large era in charismatic Pentecostal churches and then worked for a few years at that small struggling suburban church Mike mentioned, Willow Creek, and uh, uh, so had an era there and you know, now pastor a, a church in the inner city. And uh, a, a, a pair of words I've heard consistently all of my life, and it's always been a bit haunting to me, is when somebody says these two words, something's missing. In fact, say those with me, will you? Something's missing. When I hear that or some variation of that, it's always been haunting um, because I think it really cuts to the human uh, experience to some degree, right? We're kind of always asking these questions, always longing, always wondering what it is exactly we're supposed to be doing, right? what our lives are supposed to be about. And I would somewhat expect it when I heard people outside of the church say that, that was part of our Christian understanding was that deep meaning, deep fulfillment was found in Christ. So it wasn't as shocking for me, I suppose, when I heard it there. It wasn't even totally shocking when I heard it with, from people who were struggling with faith or had lots of questions. I figured maybe that's just what you would ask. But uh, when I would hear it from devoted, mature, serious Christians, that's when it would rattle me a little bit. And when I would hear it from people who I looked up to, you know, I, I, most of my upbringing, I had faith, I had questions about faith. I was uncertain about where I was at with God. I would not have classified myself most of my upbringing years as a particularly strong Christian. So it wasn't a surprise that I was asking that or saying that. But when I would hear it from those that I really looked up to, when they would say, yeah, something feels like it's missing in my relationship with God. I'm doing what I know to do. I'm doing what the pastor said or what I understand scripture to say. I'm, I'm serious about the practices. I'm serious about trying to live my life in light of God. I'm trying to, you know, stop doing bad stuff and start doing the right stuff, do my quiet times, whatever it would be, but it just still feels like something's missing. That, that would be haunting to me. Because I would think if they've given themselves to Christ and they still feel like that is true, you know, what do I have to look towards? And I'll put that on one side. The, the other side, this became the title of the book that I did. Uh, a, a passage, a verse in particular, that's really been very formative of me is John chapter 10, verse 10. Uh, most people who grew up in church know that one. You know how that one goes. Jesus says, I have come to bring life and bring it in all of its abundance or all of its fullness. Right? And within the larger context of that passage, Jesus says he's the good shepherd. That's what he's leading us towards, that he wants to bring us towards life, towards life in all of its fullness. And so it often be... Um, you know, intrigued by this gap that many Christians feel where on one side, we've got a Christ who says, I've come to bring life in all of its fullness. And on the other side, a lot of folks who feel like, ah, there might be glimpses that I get of that. There might be eras that I feel that was true, maybe high points at a particular service or a camp or whatever it would be. But um, not that many Christians who would often say that was the regular description of the life that they had with God. And so that became a really defining question for most of my adult life and as a theologian, as a pastor, of asking, what does, what does that verse really mean? Like, if we we're going to say, this is what life to the fullest actually looks like, and if we we're going to say, we've got some ideas of how to follow Christ into that, what does that mean? Those were some of the questions that I've been asked, the asking of myself. And, you know, the conclusion that I've, I eventually came to was that John chapter 10, when Jesus says, I've come to bring life to all of its full, when he, when he says, I've come to bring life abundantly, it's not really talking about something we find inside of ourselves. 
right? It's not something even we're supposed to be doing so much more, understanding so much more. It's really a declaration of who he is. It's really a declaration of who he is as life itself and who he is as the good shepherd leading us into life itself. And, and I think this is what is true for so many of us, the degree to which we gain a larger and larger vision of who Jesus Christ is and the degree to which we follow him uh, with more and more surrender and allow him to take us out of the places where we become comfortable, where we fall into the status quo, where we stick to kind of what we know. The degree to which we experience him in that way really leads correspondingly to an increase of that experience of life. And so then the kind of next question becomes, well, how do you actually do that? And that's what I want to spend the last few minutes on. Um, I would say this is probably a decade-long search I did on this. The, the place where I went to, I mean, so if you're going to ask that question, what does it look like to follow Jesus into fullness of life? Probably reading the four Gospels and how Jesus leads the disciples. That's a natural place to start, right? Did a lot of that. I also did a really in-depth study of Hebrews chapter 11. And Hebrews chapter 11 is the account, in my upbringing, we used to call it the Hall of Faith, right? It's the account of the men and women starting from the Genesis account all the way through Scripture that lived these lives of great faith. And that's a pretty um, unusual cast of characters, you know? I mean, there's some, there's, some real, <laughs> there's some really interesting folks in there, and yet this is who the Bible points to as those who experience God in this multidimensional way. And so I went through every single one of those stories and studied it and tried to look for what is the common link, because that's really what John 10 is about. It's about faith. It's about following the good shepherd. It's about following him into this life. And so studied each person and looked for common themes amongst them. And, you know, there's always a balance here. You don't ever want to get too locked into one person's life because each of us have our own story, right? Your story is not my story. My story is not yours. They're not intended to be identical paths. But there's themes that really mark the lives, the men and women who lived life abundantly, who really experienced faith in a multidimensional way. And so what I eventually put pen to paper around was what I called faith in 3D. In fact, we say that with me too. We do this a lot at our church, so sorry. Uh, humor me. Uh, repeat it with me. Faith in 3D. Faith in 3D. And go ahead. Uh, let, let me just, just so they'll stick with you. I'm going to cover them quickly, but uh, repeat each one with me. Faith in fear. Faith in, fear. Faith in, intimacy, faith in intimacy. And faith in mission. And if you've got your Bibles, open them up. Uh, uh, there would be a lot of different ways that we could point to this, uh, the interwoven nature, nature of these three dimensions of faith. Um, one of my personal favorites, for a lot of reasons, is the story of Joshua. He's one of the many um, people uh, listed in the Hebrews 11 account. But for the relevance of this conversation, one of the reasons I like the account of Joshua is it shows all three of these in succession in a really fast way that I think enables us to have kind of a bird's eye view of multidimensional faith in Christ. And remember, even when we're reading Old Testament passages, it all points to relationship with Christ. Right? Luke chapter 24, when Jesus meets those two men on the road at Emmaus, he said, everything in the whole Bible is pointing to myself. The law, the prophets, the whole thing was pointing to Jesus. So even when we read these Old Testament characters, we are seeing life with Christ. I want to read with you the first nine verses of uh, the book of Joshua. This is him describing the most prolific faith encounter he ever had with God. Uh, this is him describing uh, a multidimensional experience of faith with God. This is him describing where his journey really went to the next level. And this is how he opens his account. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I am about to give them to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. 
Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestor to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written within it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Amen. Well, I already told you what I'm proposing is faith in 3D, these three dimensions of faith that are not reserved for certain kinds of people. Uh, I think this is what life in Christ looks like. I start with faith and fear. Just an interesting trivia question. You should be able to get the answer right to this because you know where I'm going with this. If you had to guess what is the most frequently repeated command in the entire Bible... What do you think is the most frequently repeated command in the whole Bible? I'll give you a hint. We're talking about fear right now. Fear not. Did you know that? Did you know that fear not is the most frequently repeated command in the entire Bible? Uh, most commentators count 365 of them. Isn't that interesting? One for every day of our calendar year. Uh, fear not, most frequently repeated command. And I think it, it points us to the, the, uh, the nature of fear and faith and how closely they live together inside of the human heart. And one of the reasons I so love this passage from Joshua, Joshua is telling us about the most amazing encounter he's ever had with God. And he starts by saying, I was terrified. I was terrified. He had been Moses' right-hand man. And when Moses died, people started looking to him. And it's a big difference being the right-hand man and being the one that has to get up in front of the people. Right? And so in a couple different ways, he shows at the beginning of his story that as he senses the Spirit of God moving upon him, as he senses God preparing to move him, he is just filled with anxiety, with nerves, with fear. And I love that he's not like the typical pastor or the typical leader in today's day and age where we always lead with our best moments. We lead with our most courageous moments. We lead with our confidence. He leads with this honest confession that he was terrified. And you see how many times God has to come back and call him to this courageous response, which really gives us a hint about how courage works. You don't really need courage if you're not afraid, right? Courage is a faithful response to follow Christ even when you're filled with anxiety and fear. And this is so central to the faith experience. I'm really thankful for one of the great legacies. My boss at Willow Creek was a woman named Nancy Orberg. And one of the great legacies that I did not see at the time, but I eventually came to appreciate as a legacy, was how deeply uh, ingrained she saw emotional awareness, emotional health as part of the overall um, faith experience. So when I worked at Willow Creek, um, I'm sure you're familiar with Willow. It's a very fast-paced environment. Uh, it's a very aggressive atmosphere. People who work there they, they fall into two camps. Some people feel it's too fast. They get kind of left behind. I loved it. I loved the fast pace. I loved the performance nature of it. And so I, I'll never forget my first two reviews. My first review with Nancy Orberg when I worked there, I was like 24 at the time. Um, my first review went really good. And she said, he's a hard worker. He ministers to a lot of people, high capacity, blah, 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 whatever. I'm not saying that to sound awesome. It's just that my first review is good, right? Um, but she was consistently concerned that I did not have much emotional awareness. 
and that I wasn't able to see some of the ways that the shadow sides inside of me were impacting me. And she would say this, but it would just kind of go in one ear and out the other, right? She'd say this and talk about fear and talk about emotion. I'd say, it's such a woman to do something like that, right? I, if I had a dude for a boss, that would never happen, right? So I would just let it go in one ear, one out the other. Uh, this is a confession. I don't think that anymore. Uh, uh, my second review came, and this is when I realized how serious she was about it and how much I had not been listening. And my second review, which she put, this is still in my HR file at Willow Creek. In my second review, she put, Daniel's one of the most talented leaders I've ever worked with, but he's also one of the least emotionally aware people I've ever worked with in my whole life. And if he does not learn to become aware of the ways that his emotions are shaping the way he lives his life and his ministry, he will crash and burn. It is just a matter of time. Wow, that's a, a serious fight for us for a little while. So um, I could see how serious she was. So I asked her what she wanted me to do. She, of course, she wanted me to go to therapy. I'm like, of course you do, right? So um, let's just continue the narrative here. Um, so I went to her therapist, who, for the record, I still go to 15 years later. Uh, um, I went to her therapist and was very honest that I was only there because she was making me go. And he said, well, you know, you, you, signed, you said you do three sessions. What do you want to do through these three? I'm like, what are you doing? At the, I have no idea. What do you do in a therapist office? And so he said, well, fear tends to be the, one of the real dominant emotions that affects how we work in ministry. So why don't you just think a little bit about some of what you're afraid of? Maybe we can talk about that if you're open to it. I thought, okay, sure. So I gave it my best shot. I tried to have a good attitude. I spent the next week reflecting on it. And this is not, I, I'm really not exaggerating when I say this. It's unbelievable I said this. I came in my next session. I said, I've reflected on this. I've thought about this. I've really tried to be attentive to my own whatever inner being thing. And I think I can confidently say, I'm not afraid of anything. That is what I told my therapist. It's the only time I remember him laughing. You can laugh too. I remember him laughing. I don't think you're supposed to laugh when somebody says something like that. He laughed. And he said, well, could I suggest maybe at least one fear? Who does this guy think he is? He's going to tell me what I'm afraid of. And he said, is it possible that you're afraid of being afraid? Oh, wow, that is deep, right? I, okay, maybe one. What began was a journey of just realizing I just, yeah, I had internalized this message of fear not. It wasn't that I had never heard fear not, but I thought what fear not meant was never acknowledge that you have fear. I never acknowledge that it's inside there. And if you just claim fear not, maybe you're not afraid, right? What I started to realize is I'm afraid of everything. I'm afraid of my life not mattering. I'm afraid of disappointing people. I'm afraid that I'll look for God and God won't be there. I'm afraid that I'm going to try my best and I'm just going to totally fail. I realized I'm just filled with fear. And that this fear had, was having and could have had, if not checked, was having a dominant effect in the way I lived my life. So much of what I was doing is based out of the fear I had more than Jesus Christ leading me. And those two can look really similar on the outside. And that's when I really began to, began to realize that you don't ever grow in life with Christ without consistently following Jesus through the intersection of faith and fear. Every time Jesus Christ moves you, some new fear will pop up in you. Every single time. I'm convinced of it. Go back and read the disciples. In fact, every time they thought things were good, he would just elevate it again and do something that it would again take them out of their comfort zone into a point where they had to rely on him. And the point of faith isn't to permanently remove fear. The point of faith is to give us the courage to follow Christ when we feel afraid and to not choose the boat, so to speak, where we go for our stability, for our comfort, but instead to trust the Christ, to trust the one who is moving in our midst and calling us towards himself. And that's why I think it's so significant that Joshua starts his account here. He says, I was afraid. Everything that's about to happen next started at the intersection of faith and fear. All right, so that's intersection one. Uh, the second dimension, faith and intimacy. Faith and intimacy. This language also permeates the account. Um, in verse 5, God says, 
to what had really only been said to Moses at that point. You know, Moses was remembered as a friend of God. The people had used to watch Moses build a t um, have a tent of meeting with God where God would communicate with him on in an intimate basis. In verse 5, he says, As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And then he comes again talking about the book of the law, always being on his lips, meditating on it day and night, just letting the, the presence of God permeate him. Uh, uh, this is really what I think is at the heart of faith, is this intimate connection to God. And if I can put it back to John 10 language again. In John 10, Jesus says, uh, and this is just so worth meditating. In fact, Mike mentioned my blog. This will be my, the next five, six posts I'm doing. I've been thinking about this a lot lately. It's such a powerful image. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And he says, the sheep know my voice. They know my voice. And more than that, he says, they can differentiate my voice from the voice of another shepherd. Not just from differentiate from the evil one, that, that might be its own thing, but even more, more nuanced, he says, my sheep can differentiate my voice from the voice of another shepherd. And this is the heart of a faith experience is sensing the presence of God, sensing the voice of God, sensing when he's moving within our life and being able to not just go on the search for what are the behaviors you want me to do, you know, so that I can check it off and feel good about it, but where there's this daily awareness of the presence of God, of the love of God, of the movement of God, and trusting that he is the good shepherd, or in Hebrews 12, it, he calls himself the author, the pioneer of our faith. It's these imageries of showing us Jesus in our midst, a little bit ahead of us, next to us, behind us, all at the same time. Wherever you go, I am with you, he says. But this idea of being intimately connected to Jesus is really what's at the heart of faith. And I put that one second because I think even intimacy requires a lot of courage to do. All right, you know this in human relationships, right? To be intimate with another person requires revealing yourself, requires taking risks, requires getting past some of yourself to be able to do it. So it is in the faith journey as well. Then third dimension, faith and mission. Faith and mission. Now, mission, let, let me just define this word a little bit because mission can be a tricky word, especially if you grew up in church. Typically, mission or missions is used for those who have a call to go overseas, kind of do this on a vocational basis, right? So that tends to be how it's used in church. Then in the business world, you hear mission a lot too, right? The mission of the company is blah, 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 whatever. It can be confusing to understand what that word means in a biblical sense. And I find it to be very helpful to know the etymology of the word. The word mission comes from Latin. It's a very simple word, actually. It's the word missio. It just simply means to be sent. Will you say that word with me? Sent. So to be on mission simply means that you are sent. And for a thousand years, we only had Latin translations of the Bible. So there's a lot of these Latin words that make our way into English. So every time you see a man or woman throughout the Bible being sent by God to do anything, to do anything at all, the word mission would have been used. And when you think about it like that, it gives a much broader view. So is the person who's called to overseas vocational ministry, is that mission? Yeah, of course it is. But if God lays it on your heart to call somebody who might be hurting and you in faith respond to that, is that mission? That's mission two, that's being sent by God. It's a wide range of how mission works in the Bible. And where I think it's really important, so we see in Joshua chapter one, God is calling Joshua to do something on behalf of the people. He's gonna have to put his life out there. He's gonna have to put his life on the line to do something that God has called him to. His faith is not just about this intimate experience, though it's, that's the heart of it. It's not just about Joshua and God, right? And this is some of the ways we co-opt the language of faith. We think it's just for us sometimes. And it is at least for us. This, this isn't removed in the process. But faith always pulls us out of ourselves and towards others. 
And Christ moves within us and sends us to be his hands, his feet, his voice, his ears in the world. And sometimes that's really big, right? I mean, there can be big moments where Christ moves within our life and sends us, right? It was big for me when I felt God calling me to leave Willow Creek and go plant a church in the inner city. There are times where there are big things like that. And I don't want to minimize those, but those are usually just a handful throughout the course of life. More often, it's the medium things, sometimes even the small things, right? But I think it's the idea of realizing that when we're walking intimately with Christ, he will speak words to us. He will lead us. He will guide us in, back into the world on behalf of other people to remember that our faith is not ultimately just about us, but that our faith, our growing faith, our trust in Christ, our experience of life itself is for the sake of others. And as we learn to give ourselves to Christ, as we learn to become courageous men and women, as we learn to recognize the voice of Christ, we can be certain that it will never stop with just me and God moments, but will be used by God to touch others, to lay down our lives for the sake of others. And one of my favorite mission passages, if you want to call it that, the word sent fills it. If you go back into Luke 10, it's one of the really famous passages on mission. In Luke chapter 10, and Jesus says, I am the Lord of the harvest. Right? I am the Lord of the harvest. And he's described in the sense of the overwhelming love of the heart of God. I'm the Lord of this harvest. I'm the one bringing this love to the world. But he says, but the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And here's what he says. He says, we shouldn't just be open to mission. You remember what Jesus says in Luke chapter 10? In Luke chapter 10, Jesus says, you should pray to the Lord of the harvest that you would be sent as a demonstration of this love. It's a big step for a lot of us just to be open to it. But he doesn't say just be open. He says, you should pray, you should seek it, that the Lord of the harvest would send you as an expression, as a reflection of that love. And that is at its core an act of faith. We are praying that Jesus will receive us and praying that Jesus will send us back out and that we will reflect his goodness and love. And any one of those dimensions by themselves are important, but if you remove any one of them from each other, I think it starts to break down a little bit because we have to be courageous people to do this because fear and faith always go together. And we have to be intimately connected to him because it's all about hearing his voice at the end of the day. And it's got to manifest itself in such a way where we're giving ourselves to the world. And you pull any one of those three apart and I think our faith begins to suffer. But said positively, when you begin to open yourself to all three of these, to recognizing fear within your life, to listening for the voice of God and trusting that he is with us always and listening for the ways that Christ is sending us out, we experience the potency of who Jesus is within our own lives and our faith then touches the lives of others. Amen? Will you join me in prayer as we just open ourselves to that even? Well, dear God, let me, let us pray. Let me, those, those words are so in my mind right now of when you say, I am the Lord of the harvest. And so we remember that when we come to you, we're not coming to a God who's elusive. We're not coming to a God who's angry with us. We're not coming to a God who's got a deficit when it comes to love. You are a God who has an overwhelming supply of love for us. The problem is not how much love is available. The problem is our ability to internalize it, to hear it, to receive it, and then to join you as that love gets expressed to the world. So I pray for this church body, I pray for every person in here, that they will hunger to know you, that they will hunger to see a more glorious vision of you than they've ever seen up to this point, that they will sense the presence of God in their lives and respond to it 
in courageous and bold ways. We want that. We need that. May it indeed be. And all God's people said, amen.